Well, good morning. Thank you for having me here today. It's really, it really means a lot to me. As Jeff said, I was serving as an associate pastor for the last several years in Missouri and had regular preaching responsibilities there. It's a part of ministry that I really enjoy and love to share with the church. But it, over this past year, moving into a new ministry, it's been a little bit different, and I haven't had as many opportunities to preach in these last several months. So I've had a few recently, and this message I'm going to share with you today is one that I've gotten to share with a couple of different groups and one that's really been on my heart. So I'm excited to share it with our new home church. Uh, my wife and I moved here back in the summer of last year. Like I said, I was in Missouri before, and when the Lord really was putting on our heart to move into a new ministry, we really fell in love with this campus ministry here in Madison. Um, I'm working with His House Christian Fellowship, and just to confuse everybody, we're right in the middle of a name change. So come next semester, we will be Campus Collective Christian Ministries. But it's been a really exciting thing for me. One of the things I really fell in love with was as I met with the director, he really had a heart to make this a space that would be welcoming, not just to believers who we want to disciple, but to those who don't know Christ, who are maybe far from God or have walked away from the church, been hurt by the church. We want this to be a space where all students can come and wrestle through those questions of faith and get introduced to Jesus. And so it's been an exciting thing for me in my youth group in uh, Cahoka, Missouri. Our youth group was made up of mostly students from outside of the church. They were students whose families didn't go here. Some of them didn't have a home church at all. Actually, most of them didn't. But it grew not through events, not through anything special I was doing. What it really was is I sat down with the first few students that we had and said, I want this to be a place where you and your friends can meet Jesus. And if you, will br if you bring your friends here, I want you to know that they'll get to hear about who Jesus is, that he is their savior. And the students took me seriously. It grew because it was students reaching out to their peers and inviting their friends and gave them an opportunity to hear the gospel in that space. And so that's what we're really hoping to do here in Madison. Uh, we are reaching out to, this year, it's really just me and a few students. It's pouring into their lives, spending time with them, and beginning to rebuild a ministry presence here. Our ministry had a campus minister who left two years ago at the very beginning of COVID, and there hasn't really been any ministry from our organization over the last couple of years until they recruited me to come and replant and start it all over again. And so we're really excited to partner with City on a Hill. As you may know, College students don't really have a lot of money, and most of them are starting their adulthood in serious debt. So our ministry is entirely funded by churches and individual families who come alongside of us to support my family and our ministry expense and what we're doing here on campus. So it means a lot to us to have partners like that here who care about this campus and want to see students reached with the gospel and able to begin following Jesus here in that time of their life. So I've, I'm thankful to be able to share with you, and this message is one that means a lot to me because I think it applies a lot to the work that we're doing with Gen Z college students. And, and I've seen how some of this message plays out in the lives of the high school students that I've been serving for the last several years. And so today I'm going to take you to a passage that's familiar to most of us. Um, there's one verse in particular I'd like to start you with that's a common one for you, but it's also one that I think we kind of misuse a little bit. So I'm going to start there and then backtrack to the main passage. I will be in Jeremiah 29. The main passage I will share with you today will be in verses 4 through 7, but I'd like to jump ahead just a couple of verses to verse 11 and share that with you. It's one that, like I said, is familiar to many of us. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. 
They are plans for your good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. Many of us have seen this. If you've been a part of the church for a long time or you've attended graduation parties, baby showers, weddings, you, be it, uh, you, you name it, for Christian families, we show this all the time. We really love this message that God has great plans for us. And we use it in times of celebration, like looking forward to big things that are coming. And that's wonderful. And I'm not telling you to stop doing that. But that's not the context in which God's people were receiving this message. When they were receiving this, they had just gotten bad news. In fact, I'll jump back just one verse to help set the tone. In verse 10, Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised. And I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. 70 years. Now, part of the reason I thought this would be an appropriate message to bring to all of you is we just came out of Daniel. And I know that Jeff said last week he was wrapping up Daniel and we were going to be done. And now I'm just reopening all of that for you today. But what I love about this is as I'm sharing this message, you already have a context. Because over the last several weeks, we've been talking about Daniel and he was likely one of the first or in that first group of captives that were taken from Jerusalem into Babylon. And this is early on, Jeremiah is writing these words to those who had been taken away from Jerusalem into Babylon. There are prophets around who are telling God's people, they're false prophets. Jeremiah calls them out later in the chapter and says, there are people telling you that this isn't going to last very long. That, you're just gonna, that we're going to go right back to the promised land. It was as if they thought we were going to overthrow Babylon. We're going to overthrow their leadership. We're going to go right back to the promised land. God's going to bring us back. It'll be quick. Don't worry. And Jeremiah is saying, it's going to be 70 years. I really want you to think about that for a minute. I know we walked through the lives of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and learned about Israel's walk through this time. But to be here at the beginning of it and here 70 years, I'm in my mid-30s. If somebody told me you're going to be here for 70 years, if I was just leaving my home and brought into Babylon and someone said, you're going to stay in this place for 70 years, I'm thinking, that's the rest of my life. I don't think I'm making it to 106. I have to prepare to live the rest of my life in this space. Even if you're younger than that, if you're 5, 10, 15, a child young enough to understand that this message is important and hearing these words, you're listening to it thinking, I might get to come back with my grandkids if I live long enough in captivity. Most of the audience hearing this message wasn't getting good news. God was saying, I have great plans for you, plans for your good, plans for your future and for a hope. But it was in the context of you're going to be in a place of captivity for 70 years for a lifetime. But it's out of that that we get a message about how do we live in that space. Before we dive into our main passage for today, I'd like to pray with you, and then we'll unpack this a little farther. Lord, I thank you for who you are, that your plans are good, even at times when we can't see it, Lord. When we have a hard time understanding why this plan is good, you are still good. 
Lord, I pray that today as we open up your word, your voice would speak louder than mine, that your spirit would be active today in helping us to understand who and what you've called us to be in this place. In your name I pray, amen. I'd like to focus on these verses here, four through seven, because it's in this space, right before God talks about how they'll be stuck for 70 years, right before God tells the people of Israel that his plans are good, he tells them a little bit of what it looks like for them to live in this space, in a land of captivity. He says, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens, eat the food they produce. Marry and have children and find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply and do not dwindle away. I'd like to stop just for a moment there and think about this. As we've been learning about the lives of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, remember Babylon was a place where everything was being stripped away from them. This isn't like the later empires that would come, the Medo-Persian Empire. They would give some concessions to try to make good with the people they were conquering. They were the ones who allowed the Israelites to go back and begin rebuilding the temple. They wanted to give them a little bit of their heritage to make it feel like they were on the same side. Like, hey, we're going to rule over you. Don't make any mistake about it. The Medo-Persian Empire, they were in charge. But they also wanted to feel like, hey, we're going to give you a little bit back. We're not here just to oppose you. We're on your side. Babylon wasn't like that. In Babylon, they took, they took you away from your homeland. They tried to strip away your culture, teach you their language, their history. Men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those last three, that wasn't even their real names. Those were their Babylonian names that they were given. Daniel was also renamed Belteshazzar, even though we keep hearing about him as Daniel throughout the book. But that's what they did. They especially took the young men who were the most likely to lead a revolt if that day would come, who were the most likely to try to rise up and push back against the Babylonians, and they tried to turn them into Babylonians. They didn't want you to resemble your former life, your heritage, your culture. You were supposed to be a Babylonian now so that it would be so ingrained in your life that you would have no desire to go back. They stripped away everything And it's in that space that God is telling his people, plan for this to be your home. Build your houses, grow your families, plant your gardens, eat, and live in this space. Do you realize how that just goes against everything in us? If someone's pushing on us like that, taking everything away from us, trying to rip away the things that make us who we are, our normal response is to fight. I mean, this just sounds un-American, to give in, live here, stay in this place, even when they try to strip away everything that you love. Sounds un-American because it's also very, very much against our own instinct as humans. We don't want someone to treat us this way. We don't want to be enslaved and taken away from the things that we love. And yet somehow God told his people not to rise up and fight against Babylon, not to overthrow the king and march back into their city, not to take down the evil culture in the king, but to live there and plan to for the next 70 years. 
Part of the reason I want to bring up this passage is because I think the situation that Israel is in very much mirrors the place we're in now as Christians. Yes, these commands were given to Israel in a specific situation of captivity, but they had seen and tasted that the promised land was good. They had seen God provide. And now they were being told, you are going to go back eventually. One day you'll return to that kingdom. You'll return to the promised land. But right now they had to wait. Right now they had to wait in a place where most of the world around them was going to be revolting against their God. And right now as, as Christians, if you would say that you are a follower of Jesus now, we've, we can look back and we can see that Jesus has come to be our savior. We can see the work that he has done coming in and proclaiming to be our king. We can see that he is good and we've tasted that. And we're looking forward to his future kingdom, the one that he is going to usher in. As Revelation says, he is going to remake heaven and earth and his kingdom is going to come down to this earth. Like his kingdom is coming. We know it and we look forward to it. And yet right now we're in this place of waiting. And so what has God called us to do? What do we do now? The Israelites were told in Babylon they had 70 years. We were told that Jesus could come at a moment's notice. And so we wait sometimes eagerly thinking, we just want that day to be here. But I think in many ways, the message that he's given to us is just like with Israel, we need to prepare to have a life here before that kingdom comes. We need to prepare to be useful to this place. And so what does God tell Jeremiah to pass on to Israel? Verse seven, he says, work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. He called them to focus on building up that space instead of tearing it down. Think about that again for a moment. In Babylon, they are not in Jerusalem anymore. They are in enemy territory, captured, being forced into Babylonian culture. And God says, live for the peace and prosperity of the city where I have you in exile. I think sometimes we get caught up in this idea that this place isn't my home. Heaven is my home and I'm just passing through here. And there's a lot of beauty in that. We're looking forward to that kingdom and we can't wait for it to come because it's gonna be so much better than this place. But in the meantime, we are here. And I think just like with Israel, God is calling us to plan to stay, to have a lifetime here and to live for the good of this place. We're not here to just tear down the systems of the world. We're not gonna usher in the kingdom in our power. And even when the kingdom is ushered in, it's not gonna come through our works of war or through our words. It's not gonna come through the work that we do in and of ourselves. It's not gonna come from fighting and railing against an evil culture and an evil world. It's not gonna come through rallying against a one world government. It's gonna come from living for the peace and prosperity of this place. It's hard to imagine because again, it's, counter to our instinct. Our instinct is when we see something wrong, we fight and we push back and we try to change it. We take up arms and go to war against the problems of this world. 
We rally our voices and cry out in mass against the problems of this world. And yet what Jesus or what God is calling his people to do in this space looks very different. What he called them to actually looks a lot like regular old living. Build your homes, plant gardens, go to work, raise your family, make yourself at home in this world, but live for its peace and prosperity. It's really an amazing concept because I can tell you just like we want to fight against the evils of this world, the Israelites wanted to fight against Babylon. And yet what we see in Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego these last several weeks, we see men who stood up in, this, in that kind of space, in a place where they had a king who was evil. That king wrestled with God. He went back and forth between declaring that God was the one true God and then doing his own selfish things and lifting himself up as God. But the moments where he was able to acknowledge the God of Israel came through because Daniel and his friends stood firm, not as rebels, not as warriors against Babylon, but as servants to their king in the city, to servants of their king in heaven. And they acted out in love and in peace and in patience in a world that was fighting against them. Nebuchadnezzar multiple times tried to call them to worship idols. He called on them to, he served them food that was offered to idols and Daniel said, we can't eat this. He didn't go and petition for the king to change all of the food for everybody. He said, me and my man can't eat this food. And he went through What's amazing to me is he went through the proper channels, went to his supervisor and asked him to go to the king and ask if we could be given different food and to try it out just for 10 days. Just give us a chance to show that if we honor our God in this matter, he will bless us and we'll be healthy. And it worked. And then when he's told he can't pray, you could only pray to Nebuchadnezzar, he stands in his, in his room, in his home, in the window, facing the city like he always does and prays. And when they come to arrest him, he accepts it. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are told to bow down to the statue and to worship this image that Nebuchadnezzar had made, they didn't rally everybody together and start petitions and have everybody pass out pamphlets, trying to rally everybody against this evil thing the king was doing. Instead, when everybody else kneeled, they stood. And when Nebuchadnezzar asked them why, they said, we can't worship this image you have made. We will only worship our God. And even if he doesn't save us, we will not change our mind. They just accepted the fate that was coming to be thrown into the furnace and killed with patience and love. And in a remarkably peaceful way, they stood up and said, we have to honor our God first. And if you must punish us, then that's what will happen. And we're okay with it. It's interesting because Daniel was likely, and his friends were likely in the first group of captives or early on in the process of taking captives from Jerusalem to Babylon. And this message that Jeremiah is given was clearly at a time when there were still Israelites in Israel, but he was writing to those who had been taken from Jerusalem into Babylon. I don't know if Daniel and his friends heard these exact words from Jeremiah, 
if the written uh, prophecy was circulating around and they got the chance to read it and that inspired them. But what I do know is whether they saw these words from Jeremiah or not, God had instilled in them the same desire that Jeremiah was trying to preach to the people, to the rest of the people who were in captivity. To live for the good of the place where God has them. To continue to honor him and serve him. Not to fight and claw back against Babylon, but to live as if they love this place and it's their home. As if it's the home that God has given them. I just mentioned as someone in between services, I had a, a professor when I was at Moody who was my missions professor. And every week, every class, he would continually come back and say, wherever you are, you are a missionary. And that is your mission field. That was the kind of life that God was calling his people to back before Jesus even walked this earth. To live as if they were in a mission field rather than a war zone. I want to bring you to a passage in the New Testament because I think it helps to show the continuity between what God was saying to his people then and what he's saying now. Because I think it's important to see that Jesus also was living in a time when the Romans were ruling over Israel. They still were not really free. And yet Jesus never came across as a warrior against Rome. He never came across as one who was overthrowing the king. Instead, he lived in love and compassion and peace in that place. It's amazing to think that a Roman empire that went from persecuting Christians eventually flipped to where the emperor in Rome declared Christianity the official religion of Rome. Now, regardless of how you feel about that and what that did for the church over the year, in the years to follow, the cross went from a symbol of Rome's power and authority over people and how they would wield it and kill anyone who stood opposed to them to an acknowledgement of Jesus as Savior and King. And it started with Jesus and his followers living in peace and love and compassion in a violent place. I'm going to take you to Luke chapter 6. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's also found in Matthew, but I like the way it's compiled together here in Luke, so that's where I'd like to read for you today. Starting in verse 27 of Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, But to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks, and when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. If you only love those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. If you lend money to only those who can repay you, why should you get any credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High, for he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate, just as your Father is compassionate. It's interesting that what he called us to do in this space is to live a life of love, even in the face of those who will not return the favor. 
See, we are supposed to be examples of a healing presence in this world. We are not here to rally against the world. I know sometimes we get caught up in the term culture war. And we're not to be like the culture. In so many ways, we're called to be different. But it doesn't look, our response isn't supposed to look as much like a war as we think. Rather than it looking like we're at war, it looks like we're choosing to be something different. A reminder of the healing presence of our King. Because when Jesus came into this world, he came to forgive us of our sins. That is an important part of the gospel, but he also came to bring healing of the things that were broken. He healed those that were affected by the curse and the power of sin in this world, of their blindness, the oppression of demons, those who could not walk, those who were broken and hurting came to Jesus and they were healed. One thing we found in these last few years of college ministry and high school ministry, serving Gen Z, is I think sometimes we misunderstand the next generation. Let's face it, most of us probably feel like our generation was misunderstood by the generations before. Sometimes you talk to people and it sounds like Gen Z is being written off by so many, especially older Christians. And by older, I mean anyone older than Gen Z. Because sometimes we just don't get the next generation. Just like those who came before us didn't really understand us. But one thing that's kind of amazing in Gen Z is I think they're seeing this need for a healing presence in a broken world. See, with the younger generation, I think over the years, over the decades, it's gotten harder and harder for students, for young people to connect with this message of you're a sinner who needs a savior. It's true but it's hard to connect because for years and years, the world has been shifting to this message of you just need to be who you are. It's actually gotten to be a joke among our campus ministry staff, how much we can't stand the phrase, you do you, because it seems to be so much of this focus on just live out what's in your own heart. And yet scripture tells us that our hearts are desperately sick and deceitful. We've been telling students for years and years, just be true to yourself and be who you are. And then the gospel message is, you're a sinner and you need to repent and you need to be saved. And it conflicts with what they've been told their whole life. And frankly, for a lot of them, it just doesn't make sense yet. But what we don't often notice is that Gen Z does look around this world and see brokenness. We see these younger generations stepping in, looking around the world and saying, things aren't the way that they should be. Young people are coming into college and they're looking around the world and saying, there are people who are hurt and oppressed, people whose lives are crumbling. Our systems and our governments, not just here, it's not just a commentary in the States, it's everywhere. We see power abused. We see resources annihilated and people hurt in the process. And Gen Z is saying, This isn't the way the world should be. Something is broken and it needs to be healed. And what they don't realize is they're longing for the gospel. I think the next generation of students is looking around this world and they don't realize it yet, but what they're looking for is Jesus. 
And the thing is, once you begin to look around the world and say that this world is broken and it needs someone to save it, it needs someone to rescue it and to bring healing, and you realize that's Jesus, that opens the door to say, yeah, but your sin and my sin is part of the reason it's broken. And we need that healing too. Each one of us also needs Jesus to be the one who heals our heart, forgives us of our sin, and transforms our lives. But for a long time, I think our gospel presentation has started with, you're a sinner who needs to be saved, and then because of that, we go out into the world to be agents of healing. And that hasn't been a bad thing. It's just that for a lot of young people now, they need to see that Jesus cares about this place and bringing healing here, and one day restoring it and bringing in a kingdom that is going to conquer all of the evils that they see in this world. And that's the open door to say, and you need him just as much. See, God has called us to live in this space for him. Just like he called Israel in Babylon, in captivity, to work for the peace and prosperity of that place. We want this place to succeed. Sometimes as Christians, we kind of get this attitude of, because heaven is my home and this place is going to burn anyway, it doesn't really matter. And we may not always say it that way in words, although frankly, I have heard people say it that way in words. But often our actions show that we think this world is a lost cause and we just want Jesus to come faster. We just want to move on past this part. But I think much like what, Jesus, or what God is calling the Israelites to do in Babylon, I think he's calling us to plan to live in this space because he cares about this space. No, he doesn't want us to love the world in the sense of loving sin and loving the things that are broken and elevating those, but he loves the people, the hearts. He loves this creation. And when we show the world that God cares about this space by us getting into it and loving it and nurturing it and working for it to grow and prosper, when we stand in as agents of love, when the world around us is angry and fighting and trying to get its way, and we choose to be peaceful and humble and patient and compassionate, that's when we begin to see a change in the culture. The culture doesn't change because we go to war against it. A culture changes because people who are within it choose to live and be some, live as and be something different. See, when Jesus was saying to love your enemies, to do good to those who hurt you, when somebody takes from you, just give them more, that's not the desire of our hearts. I can't think of one time when I've been hurt by somebody and the desire of my heart is I just want to do something nice for that person. Our response is we want to fight back. We get pushed, we want to push. We get hurt, we want to cause some damage in return. And yet what Christ called us to is to respond with love and compassion in a world full of hearts where the first instinct is to fight and turn angry when we don't get our way. I can tell you for most of Israel, as they were being brought off into captivity, that was not their way. It was not what any of them wanted. It was not what they asked for. 
All they wanted was to go back and any prophet who would come in and say, fight against this, we're gonna return to the promised land, that person was a hero. Somebody like Jeremiah saying, plan to be here for a while. Plan to be here for your whole life. Raise your family and build this place up. That person probably sounded crazy. And I know sometimes a message like this in our world today, when we see the brokenness in this world, when we see a world that seems to be turning away from God more and more each day, our natural instinct is we need to fight and take this back. We need to steer it in the right direction. And yet the way Jesus did that and the way that he showed us to do that, the way that God called Israel to do that, was live here and care about this place. Treat this place like your home. We know we've got the future kingdom coming and we're looking forward to it. Don't forget about that because what we're doing is we're looking forward to that and then we're living here as if it's already started to show up. We live as witnesses and ambassadors in this space. I'd like to take you for a moment to Acts chapter one. This is the passage where Jesus is preparing to ascend into heaven heaven, and he's addressing his apostles. He's preparing them to do the work that he's given them to do. And in verse eight, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching and they could no longer see him. And they strained to see him rising into heaven. And two white-robed men suddenly stood among them and said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. My first response to this is always, that's why they're looking into heaven. Jesus literally just rose up into the clouds and disappeared. So of course they're staring into heaven. And they know he's going to come back. And probably a part of them is hoping he's going to come back right now. He's going to fade off into the distance and then he's going to come right back with heaven's army and that's it. His kingdom is coming. But it wasn't yet. At least not in the way that they were hoping. The angels look at them, why are you sitting here with your head in the clouds? What are you waiting for? Because as much as the instinct is, yeah, we saw him go up and we're just looking and waiting for him to come back. What Jesus just told them to do was to go and be his witnesses. Throughout Jerusalem, their home. Throughout Judea, the area surrounding their home. To Samaria, the people who didn't like them. They didn't like the, they didn't like the Samaritans either. Saying like to, your, to the people here, to the people nearby, to your enemies and to the ends of the earth. Go and be my witnesses. I love how Paul uses the term ambassadors to talk about us because we are like ambassadors of a kingdom that is coming. And we're not coming in to go to war against the current kingdom. We're coming in to represent the one that's on the way. To proclaim the goodness of our king. To come in in love and compassion and say, hey, you want to serve my king too. And here's why. And they're not going to believe it just because of the words that we say, but because of the way we live in love and compassion in a world that is full of anger 
and hatred and violence. Because they're going to see a people who look completely different than the world around them. Because they're going to see a people, no matter how much they hurt you, you respond with love and you care about them. It's completely counterintuitive and countercultural. And that's the point. We weren't called to be just like the rest of the world around us. We're called to live in light of a king who has saved us and stripped away all fear, stripped away our sin, who's forgiven us and embraced us and called us his own. A king who, while we were still enemies, he died for us. And we can stand in front of those who would consider themselves our enemies today and we can love them because that's the way Jesus loved me and loved you. Like we said in Jeremiah 29, verse seven, we are called to work for the peace and prosperity of the city where we are sent into exile and pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Just like Daniel and his friends lived in a place of exile, in a place where they were the rejects, in a place where they were opposed. And they stood up as faithful advisors to the earthly king, faithful servants to their heavenly king. They stood up in peace and in love, and they actually did things for the king that would help his kingdom to grow and prosper and help him to see who God is not as warriors or as opposition, but as those who are faithful in love. There's one more passage I want to share with you that's not in the, the slides or notes today, but it's in 2 Peter chapter 3. Starting in verse 8, Peter writes, You must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really slow about his promise, as some people think, no, he is patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. A few verses later in verse 14, he says, So dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. And remember our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. Yeah, we're looking forward to his kingdom. We're looking forward to the day when it's going to be ushered in for all of eternity. And the pain and brokenness of this world will be gone. But in the meantime, let's love and work for this place and cherish the Lord's patience. Because as he waits and as we wait, it's just one more opportunity for someone else to see that he is good, that he is their king and their savior and be saved. Each day we have here to work for the good of this place is another day to show someone else who Jesus really is. To proclaim that message to this world. So what are we waiting for? Let's not stand with our head in the clouds looking and hoping Jesus will come back right this moment and instead go to his work of being witnesses, working for the good of this place in love and in compassion desiring it to grow and succeed because the Lord cares about this place too. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are a good king, 
that you are our Savior. And Lord, we know that. We know that your plans for this place are good. Even at times when we look around and it doesn't seem so good. Lord, I pray that we would be patient, that we would serve you in love and compassion, that we would show this world what it's like to be one of yours. Lord, I pray that as they see the way that we care for them and for this world, for this creation, Lord, I pray that that would open the door to show them that you came to bring healing in their lives as well. Lord, this world is a broken place, but you are its healer. This is a kingdom of chaos, but you are a king who brings order and peace. Lord, I pray that you would use each one of us to bring just a taste of that into this city, into our, to the lives of our neighbors, Lord, even to our enemies. In your name I pray, amen.